0: Well, good morning, Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. Since I was out of town last weekend, I'd like to take this opportunity publicly to thank Jordan Woodruff for filling in for me. He did an excellent job. That's, he's not here, so we can, he'll hear this on the, on the recording later. He's actually serving in kids ministry with his wife today. But it's good to be back with you as we continue our sermon series through the book of John, the gospel of John that we've entitled Believe believe, because that's John's purpose for writing, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. When I was in grade school, one of my teachers, every time we had a substitute, the day after, she would have a pop quiz. And the reason she did that was to make sure that we paid attention to the substitute. Well, guess what? We had a substitute last week, and so it's pop quiz time. Don't worry, it's just two easy questions, and I'll even make it open book. So if you want to open to the Gospel of John, end of chapter 19, feel free to do that. Cheating is okay, all right? First question, where was Jesus at the end of chapter 19? This isn't rhetorical, you can shout it out. In a grave. Second question, where was the grave? It's a little harder. It's okay, it's okay. Where was the, help him out. It was a tomb, yes, but where was the tomb? In a garden, in a garden. Actually, it's a detail that's mentioned twice in the text. John takes careful um Care, have careful care. You get, you get the idea. John, John makes sure that he highlights that little detail that the tomb was in a garden. He mentions it twice. Why? Because it's not insignificant. Think about it. Gardens are where seeds are planted, right? Gardens are where new life is cultivated. John has already recorded Jesus saying back in chapter 12: truly, truly, I say. To you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Gardens are where seeds go to die. And then they burst forth in new life that multiplies into even more life. Where does life start in Genesis? At the beginning of the biblical narrative, where does life start? In a garden the Garden of Eden. And so it's fitting that the beginning of a new creation will now burst forth from a garden tomb in John's narrative. Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Well, this morning we're going to study John's account of the most profound and meaningful event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as we examine John's very personal eyewitness account of this historical event, it's my prayer today as your pastor that this event will not just be something that you process up here and go, yeah, I'll give mental assent to that, but that you'll process it here. That the implications of the resurrection will become very personal to you as they were to the central figure in the narrative that witnesses the events, a lady named Mary Magdalene with a traumatic past. Not only does Jesus call her by name, indicating that he knows her, he loves her, he has a purpose for her. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus knows your name too. That he calls you by name. Kevin, Patrick, Sam, Jill, Lily. I could go on, but that would take a long time. Just insert your name. He knows you by name name. He loves you. He knows you. He has a purpose for you. Before we dive into John chapter 20, let's pray together and ask God to give us guidance as we study his word. Father, thank you for this very personal and exciting and life-changing passage from the gospel of John that we get to study together this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts to understand what you want us to understand on a heart level not just with our minds Father your spirit would work and assure us of your love for us your knowledge of us and the fact that if you have given us faith to believe you know us by name and it's not in a distant way but a very personal familial way may that truth sink deeper into our lives today we pray through your word and through your spirit Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, um, if you haven't already done so, open up to the beginning of John chapter 20. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, please visit our connect point in the back corner over there. We have several copies of the Bible there. They're free. You can take one, take it home with you as our gift to you. And as usual, the words will also be up on the screen behind me as we read through this text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, who is that? John. Remember, he never mentions his name, and he just cloaks it. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. You know, it's interesting that all four gospel accounts of the resurrection start out by saying that it occurred on what day? The first day of the week. They don't say on the third day. They don't say, you know, after Jesus spent a couple nights in the tomb. No, they they all say on the first day of the week. Why? Why? Why do they put a a spotlight on the fact that this occurred on a Sunday morning? This is significant. And what we need to understand here is that the Jewish calendar was calendar week was oriented in reflection of the creation account remember you have God creating starting on the first day he creates first second third fourth fifth sixth day and what happens on the seventh day on a saturday He's finished, and he rests. And that's why the Jewish people, their calendars are oriented around that, and they celebrate what on Saturday? Sabbath. That's when they rest as well in reflection of the creation account. And so in a Jewish context, when, when the spotlight is put on Sunday, what does that tell us? All of the gospel writers are trying to highlight the fact that something significant is going on here. They're hinting that this is the beginning of what? What happened on Sunday back in the creation account? God began to create. So this is the beginning of a new creation of sorts. They're highlighting that. They want us to know, hey, God's up to something new here. This is significant. Now, the central figure in John's resurrection narrative, besides, of course, Jesus, is a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. We learn about her in in the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We learn that she traveled around with Jesus along with the other disciples and also several other women who helped to support Jesus financially. Perhaps she was a woman of means, but perhaps she was wealthy. We also learn that Jesus had rescued her from severe demonic oppression. Luke mentions that she had been possessed by seven demons that Jesus cast out from her. So Jesus was her rescuer. Jesus was a very important figure in the narrative of her life. She saw him as her savior, literally and figuratively. So in her grief over his death, which can be very much understood based on her story, Mary takes the very first opportunity that she has possible to go and visit the grave. Once the Sabbath is over, she goes first thing Sunday morning while it's still dark to visit the tomb. Now that John mentions that it's dark, it must have been just light enough for her to observe something right away. And what was that? This huge stone that had been rolled to to block the cave-like entrance has been rolled away. And the, the first thing that pops into her mind is to assume the worst. That either Roman authorities have moved the body or that grave robbers looking for valuable possessions, personal effects, had gotten there before her, stolen the body, dished it somewhere. And so she rushes to tell Peter and John, who once again cloaks his name here in the text, and simply says, The other disciple Jesus loved... She runs and tells them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. That's the only logical explanation she can think of for why the stone had been rolled away. Upon hearing this news, Peter and John spring into action in what becomes somewhat of a foot race between the two. Verse 3. Let's look at that together. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And that's a little humble brag from the author of the, the gospel here. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. See, John was a young man at this point, and so it, and Peter is a little bit older. So there's no shock that he beats Peter in this foot race to the tomb. John stops at the entrance to the tomb, stoops to look in. He sees the linen cloths that were used to wrap the corpse just lying there. But he doesn't go in. He doesn't go in. He stays outside. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him. Again, John highlighting that he got there first. Went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, if we're going to give um, John points for speed, we've got to give Peter points for courage, okay? Think about it. This is a spooky scene. It's still dark out. You're in a graveyard. There's an open tomb. It gives me the willies just thinking about it, okay? And while John, like, carefully approaches and just kind of peeks in, what does Peter do? He barges right in to an open tomb in a spooky graveyard. Courageous Peter. (laughs) Impulsive Peter. And Peter sees the same thing that John observed from outside the tomb, the linen cloths that were used to wrap the corpse just lying there. But then he sees another curious detail that John hadn't observed yet. And that's the face cloth, neatly folded up and set off. To one side. What's that all about? Hold that thought. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first time out. This is the third time that John mentions, I reached the tomb first. You know, he's an old man at this time writing this gospel, and he wants, he, he knows this is, he knows this is going to be in the Bible, and, and, and so he wants all Christians of all times to know I beat Peter. You know, he, He's got to be a little bit competitive like Brett Rutledge in disc golf. But um, he, he wants everyone to know that he won uh, Peter, I mean John. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John follows Peter into the tomb. He sees something, and the text says he believes. He believes. Well, what did he see? It can't be the linen cloths. He saw those from outside the tomb. What did he see? He saw what Peter saw when Peter barged in, and that was what? What's folded up and laid off to the side? The head cloth. The cloth used to cover the face of the corpse. Now, why would observing a folded face cloth cause John to believe? I know what some of you ladies might be thinking. This is obviously a miracle, right? A man folded something. But that's not it. That's not it. Think about it. If grave robbers had stolen the body, would they have taken the face cloth off of it first? Now, you've got to be kind of sick in the head to want to see a dead man's face. They likely didn't do that. Now, now let's just suppose that there's a couple um, grave robbers, they're lugging this body out of the tomb and the face cloth falls off. Is one of them going to say, oh, wait a minute, man. Okay, let's go. No, they're not going to take time to do that. Where does the evidence point here? Evidence of a folded face cloth does not point to somebody breaking into the tomb, does it? What does it point to? Somebody breaking out. Of the tomb. Somebody who neatly tidied up after themselves. After all, this is a borrowed tomb. And John sees this and he believes. He believes. And then he and Peter go back to their homes in amazement. Well, somebody's trailing behind them. Pribe arrives to the tomb. Remember, they've had a foot race to this. They're typical males Mm -hmm. with their (sighs) testosterone. We're going to get there first. They got there. They see. They're in amazement. They leave while Mary Magdalene, in her grief, comes back to the tomb. Let's pick up the text in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? She's already said that once to Peter and to John. With blurred vision from tear-filled eyes, Mary looks into the tomb and sees two figures dressed in white. She probably, in her grief, doesn't even comprehend that these are angels until later. And the angels ask her why she's weeping, and she simply repeats the same line that she told to Peter and John. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. She's stuck on this fact. She can't move beyond it. The sight of two angels doesn't even shake her out of it. Remember, we've got to understand, she had a life of trauma, a life of severe demonic oppression. Jesus had rescued her, and now, at least in her own understanding, he's dead. He's dead. This has to be triggering some kind of PTSD for her. And added to it now is the fact that she doesn't know where the body has been laid. Somebody's taken it away in her understanding. And she's anxious and she's fearful and she's fixated. They've taken the body of Jesus and I don't know where they've laid him. They've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Sobbing, weeping, distraught, not knowing what to do next. They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Tears streaming down her face. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Right here is one of the many things I love about Jesus. He could have chosen any one of the disciples to give the privilege of seeing him first. He could have chosen courageous Peter. He could have chosen fleet-footed John. He could have chosen Doubting Thomas. He could have waited and appeared to them all at once when they were gathered together and made some grand grand appearance, grand entrance. But no, what does he do? He chooses to first reveal himself to who? Mary Magdalene, demon-scarred Mary, traumatized Mary, anxious Mary, fearful Mary, emotional Mary. In his gentle grace and compassion, he chooses her to be the first one to see him alive and back from the dead. I love that about Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? He knows. He's just trying to raise self-awareness in Mary. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, "'tell me where have you laid him, "'and I will take him away.'" Jesus was her rescuer, her lifeline, her Lord, and so in the wake of his death, her greatest desire is to honor him by taking care of his body. She looks through tear-blurred vision at this man that she just assumes is the gardener and says, if you're the one who carried him off, please tell me where you've ditched the body. I'll take him away. I'll bury him in a safe place. I'll give him proper burial. I'll make sure he rests in peace. Please tell tell me. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, say it out loud with me. Mary. One word. Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. With just one word, her name, everything changes. Jesus just simply speaks her name, Mary. And there was only one person who said her name like that. She knew instantly that Jesus was there and that Jesus was alive. Isn't this an interesting detail? Just her name. I think John wants us to recall here the analogy that Jesus used of the sheep and the shepherd back in John chapter 10 that he recorded for us. Let's look at that. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Now I can look out in this room and see faces of people that I've known for a very long time. You know, Adam Eagle and Gus Andalina and Paul Mercer and um, Elizabeth Cottrell, um, Lily Scott and her sister who's visiting. Rob Hinks, haven't seen you in a while. It's good to see you. And my heart is, is filled with affection for all of these names. So if I didn't mention your name, don't worry, I still love you. I do. I just didn't happen to look at you, okay? My heart is filled with affection and fondness for these names, but they don't have quite the same impact and don't stir up quite as, emo- as much emotion in me as the name Ellie or the name Mia Sorry, or the name Emma. I was there when those three names took their first breath of life. I would jump in front of a truck for those three names. I'll pray with tears streaming down my face for God to work in the lives of those three names. Why? They're mine. God, in his craziness, decided to entrust me with three souls. I don't know why, I still lose my car keys, but but he did. (laughs) Jesus spoke Mary's name like I speak Ellie, Mia, Emma. They're mine. They know my voice. I know them. They know me. And even if you don't have kids, I think you can resonate with what I'm trying to say here. He calls his own sheep by name. He knows his own. And Mary responds the way that she does because his own know him. This is familial. Jesus is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I know my sheep by name. Jesus calls her Mary by name, and everything changes in an instant. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. Mary's so overjoyed at the sight of Jesus alive that she grabs onto him and never wants to let go. She she wants to cling to him forever, but who can blame her? She thought that she had lost Jesus, her rescuer. but now he's back. Now he's alive. But curiously, Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, Mary. Let me go, Mary. Why? Jesus hints at his reason when he says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's true that I'm back here with you, Mary, but I'm not here to stay. I have to go again. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I have work to do, in other words. Remember what he had said to his disciples earlier? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also with me forever. The reason that the time is not right for Mary to cling on to Jesus and never let go is the fact that Jesus still has work to do. His resurrection is the dawning of a whole new creation, but this is still just the first day of that new creation. There's still work to be done, not only in the lives of men, women, boys, and girls That Jesus will draw to himself through the power of the Spirit that he's going to send to indwell his disciples and empower them for the task of telling others about his resurrection. Not only is there that work to be done, but there's the work to be done of recreation, of creating a new and better Eden, of creating a new Jerusalem, a garden city that will descend from heaven on a new earth, a recreated earth, where God's people will dwell with him and Jesus forever. We read about this. Also from the pen of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, 1 through 5, a place that Jesus is preparing for his disciples to dwell with him in resurrected bodies forever. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, Jesus said, behold, I am making all things new. That's hope, my friends. This is the work that Jesus has left to do at the dawning of a new creation. He's gone away. We sit here this morning in the shadow of the cross, but another dawn is coming. We sit here this morning, there's an empty tomb, but... Jesus is coming back, and at that point, the consummation of all things will be complete. A new heaven and a new earth. The old gone, the new fully come. We're in this already, this awkward already, but not yet period. And Jesus is telling Mary, it's not time to cling to me right now because I'm going away, but I have work to do. Recreating work for you. A place, a new Eden, a new Jerusalem where we can dwell together, forever, the way it was meant to be. And my resurrected body is just the beginning. It's just the first fruits. When Mary mistakenly thought that Jesus was the gardener, she wasn't entirely wrong. He is the caretaker of a new creation. Just as Adam was placed in the garden to be the caretaker of the old creation, so now Jesus, the second Adam, is standing where? In a garden. The resurrected caretaker of a new creation itself. And it's no wonder that Mary wants to hold on to him. It's the first light of the first day of the week on the dawning of a new creation. And she finds herself with God walking towards her in the garden in the cool of the day, an echo of Genesis, and she's back in Eden. It feels like heaven on earth once again, but not yet. There's still work to be done. This is just a small foretaste of what's coming. This is a foreshadowing of the new creation, the new Eden. Jesus must ascend, do his work, delegate his work to his disciples, and then return to make all things new. We are here having been dispatched by Jesus. If you're a believer, you've been dispatched by Jesus to carry on his renewing work in the world. And don't miss the fact that Jesus chooses to first dispatch demon- demonically scarred, traumatized, fearful, anxious Mary to be what? The first missionary, the first one to go and tell others Jesus is alive, there's hope. Death isn't the end. If Jesus wanted to use Mary, I have an inkling he wants to use you. He wants to use me. In spite of all of our inadequacies, all of our fears, all of our failures, all of the trauma in our pasts, to share the same story. Jesus is alive. We have hope. Death isn't the end. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus can call us his brothers and his sisters. Remember what he said to to Mary here, go tell my brothers, go to my brothers, say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus can call us brothers and sisters because of the resurrection. As John wrote when he began his gospel, to all who received him, Jesus, and believed on his name, he gave the right to be called what? Children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are, if you believe. If you believe you are his. And just like Mary, he calls you by name, indicating that he knows you, he loves you, has a purpose and a plan for your life. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see a pattern of God calling people by name in order to speak his purposes, his power, his presence, and his provision over them. You see it with Moses in the Old Testament, with Samuel. You see it in our text this morning with Mary. You might be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, that's great, but my name's not Samuel. It's not Moses. It's not Mary. My name's Gary. Now, if your name is Gary, this isn't a prophetic word, okay? We're not Charismatic Church. I just pulled that out of the air. Um, But one of the greatest lies of Satan is to whisper in your ear that God doesn't really care about you. That your life is so messed up and insignificant because of something you've done in your past or some struggle that you currently have in the present that God doesn't really care to know your name. And if he does know your name, When he speaks it, he he says it with a bit of a disappointed tone. Oh, Mark. How many of you, if you're honest, have a hard time believing that one, Jesus knows your name. He calls you by name and he speaks it in the same tone that he spoke Mary's name in this passage. There's something in your past and your present that Satan uses to give you doubts about God's love for you. To give you doubts that he knows your name like I speak Ellie and Mia, and Emma's names, to give you doubts that he forgives you, that he delights in you, that he calls you his own. If you can relate with those kinds of doubts, would you be brave this morning and simply raise your hand so we can encourage each other? Okay, look around. Keep them up, keep them up. Now just look around, just look around. I want you to see how common this is. Satan's number one strategy against the children of God is to whisper in their ear, you don't matter. You're not really a child of God. He must not really love you like that. If he knew this about you, remember he's called the accuser in Scripture, if he knew this about you, he'd be disappointed. You better clean yourself up before you go back to him. It's a lie from a forked tongue to make you doubt God's love for you. As the band comes back up, let me put the truth in your ears and hopefully your hearts that will counter this lie from the forked tongue of our enemy. And that's this. It's a verse you all know. I encourage you to say it with me. Or most of you will know. Some of you might not, and that's okay. It's from John chapter 3, verse 16. You see it held up at football games, okay? There's a reason it's an important verse. If you know it, Say it with me. For God so loved. Now, pause. Time out. I want you to say your name right here. Okay. For God so loved Mark that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus went to the cross and to the grave for you. He knows you, he calls you by name, and his resurrection is just the first fruits of what God is doing in making all things new. By his grace and through our faith, his plan is also get to give us resurrected bodies that will live forever. Brett and Nelda and Sean are gonna be leading us in a closing song. And by your chair, probably on the floor, you, you have a little communion cup. We're gonna be taking communion together this morning. What this is, if you're not familiar, it's, it's a way Christians look back and remember what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, in the last, last supper with the disciples, took two elements of the Passover meal and he reinterpreted them. He took the bread as he was breaking it and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so in remembrance of of me. And so, as we do this as Christians, some 2,000 years later, we remember the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us. We remember the significance of his broken body and his shed blood in our place on our behalf instead of us. But it's not just looking back. Never make communion just about remembering and looking back. Make it about looking forward, too. At that last supper, he said, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until. I celebrate with you in my kingdom. That indicates that Jesus wants us to look forward to when we drink this cup. We remember his shed blood, but we look forward to the day when the new Jerusalem, the new and better Jerusalem and a new and better Eden will come. When this world will be made new and death and sickness and disease and tears and crying and mourning and pain are no more. And we celebrate a feast with our Savior and drink the cup with him. You're not going to be prompted on when to do this. You can do it before we start the song, as we're singing the song, in between the chorus and the verse, at the end of the song. Just as you reflect on what Jesus has done for you, take that bread, take that cup, eat it, drink it, and look forward as well to the hope that we have, that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is coming back to give us resurrected bodies as well.